This morning we will be looking at Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. In our text this morning, Jesus is telling a parable to us. And as we look at this text, remember that. Jesus is not simply telling historical people a story. This parable is recorded for your benefit as well. And now if you'd please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom, and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him, and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming I might have collected it with interest." And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here. And slaughter them before me. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask this morning that you would bless us by your word. That you would 
Reach us by the power of your Holy Spirit with your word of truth. Convict us of our sin, O Lord. Comfort us with the healing power of the gospel. This we ask in the name above all names, the name of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Investing is confusing, isn't it? This is something that we all understand that for some long off period of time we have to do. But how do we know what kind of investment will bear fruit? If you're like me and a bit confused by all of the various mechanisms and funds and ways you can invest, you simply find something like an index fund that's easy. And you put money in it and you just let it run. I think most of America understands this, the way most stock trading is now done by computer instead of by person. Investing is also important. We understand that. You know how they say that if you want to be a millionaire, you have to start investing very, very early? And so I've got good news for you teens. If you just take every single penny you're making and you save it, someday you'll be a millionaire. That's a lot harder than it sounds, isn't it? Because there's expenses, there's challenges, there's difficulties. Our spiritual lives are like that as well. As we invest in our spiritual lives, it can be confusing. What's the best course for me? What ought I to do? Who ought I to talk to? How can I best grow spiritually? This morning we see a parable from Jesus. It's a parable about investing, investing in the kingdom. But it's more than that. It's a reminder to us of the critical nature of Christ's kingdom and how we must be focused upon that above all things. And so this morning I'd like to very simply look at this parable in two ways. First, I'd like to look at the story of it as Jesus tells us a parable. And then secondly, I'd like us to look at the meaning of the parable because As we've said, this parable has meaning for you and me today, for our lives before the King of Heaven today. So let's take a look then first at the story itself as Jesus tells a parable. Let's begin by thinking about the setting of this parable. Jesus always knows exactly what to say and exactly when to say it. There is nothing random about Jesus' teaching. He is giving this parable at this point in the narrative for a purpose. What do we know then about the setting? Verse 11 gives us some clues. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So our passage begins, as they heard these things. So our first question is, what are these things? What did Jesus hear that caused him to tell this parable? Well, if our eyes move up just a little bit, we see that it is what we looked at last week. 
the story of Zacchaeus. Now, you have to remember, we talked about this last week, that so often we see that story, the story of Zacchaeus, with our own eyes. You see, we don't realize how bad of a man Zacchaeus was. For us, he's kind of a cuddly cartoon character with a catchy song. But really, he was a wicked man. The other thing that we tend to focus upon is the individual nature of salvation that Jesus brings in the story of Zacchaeus. We tend to focus upon the fact that Zacchaeus came to know the Lord and that he was saved. And that is our focus of attention and even of rejoicing. But what I would like you to do this morning, so we can understand the parable, is to look once again at the story of Zacchaeus, the setting, the these things, with the eyes and ears of those who were listening to Jesus speak. Let me ask you a question. How much do you think they would have cared that Zacchaeus got saved? You see, for us, it's kind of a big deal, isn't it? But... For them, they weren't actually that interested in Zacchaeus, were they? They didn't like him. He was a wicked man who would harm them. Now, they might be thankful for the fact that his conversion to Christ might mean less harassment. But at the end of the day, as they think about this, as they talk about this, as they hear the words, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, they're not focusing on Zacchaeus. Let me illustrate this for you. It would be as if I told you a story that had just happened in the news. That what had happened was Lois Lerner had made a profession of faith in Christ. And she had apologized for everything she had done in the IRS. And she was going to make restitution to every charitable organization that she had harmed. Now I ask you, would you be focused on her and her profession? Or would your mind immediately jump to the fact that we're finally going to get it to the IRS? That we're finally going to see some changes in Washington? If you're like me, your mind would move immediately to what we would think would be the bigger picture beyond one individual. And I think that's what's happening here in this parable. For the Jews, what was going on was less about Zacchaeus and more about Israel. Zacchaeus was changed. You can imagine the conversations. Now we're finally going to put it to the Romans. They lost their chief tax collector. There's no way they're going to be able to collect what they need to collect. Times are changing. We are on the move. Look at what Jesus can do. Can you imagine if we put him in front of the Roman army? They would all come and flock to our banner. You see, this is what Jesus is hearing. It's a little bit different than what we first hear when we think about the story of Zacchaeus. And Luke underlines this for us because... He tells us there are two reasons specifically that Jesus tells this parable at this time. He says, number one, because they were near to Jerusalem. And number two, because they supposed that the kingdom of God would come immediately. Now, let's take the first. He was near to Jerusalem. You can imagine all of the excitement by the 
the incident with Zacchaeus and all of the things that Jesus was doing and all the power that he showed. And now there's real excitement because he's getting near to the capital. It becomes more emphatic because of the geography. We see this all the time, don't we? We get excited that there'll be real change when we see what? Christian marches on Washington. When we fill the mall. When the banners are there. When the helicopters are overhead with cameras. We think now things are really going to change. And you see, the closer that Jesus gets to Jerusalem, the irony is, is that the further the people get from the work that he was going to Jerusalem to perform. You see, we know the end of the story. We know that he was going to Jerusalem to die upon a cross, an atoning death for those who would trust him by faith, and that he would be buried and he would rise again for the justification of all of his people. But they don't know this. They are anticipating a revolution. Jesus is almost there, and things are going to finally change. So could you blame them for also thinking that the kingdom is going to come immediately? They might be expecting a new Jewish state to arise. And perhaps the Romans would even give up and leave. You see, this was their focus. It's it's more than just impatience. They want the kingdom to come immediately, but, but it's more than just a lack of patience. We understand that very well. We've got no patience down as Americans, don't we? We're very, very frustrated that it might take four seconds for a web page to load. If I change my browser, can I get it to load in three? We're very, very frustrated, as, as my family knows, whenever we sit at a red light. Uh, I just had that experience this morning. You know, there's no traffic at 6 a.m., but you can wait at a light for two or three minutes. It's frustrating. But that's not what's going on here. It's not just merely a frustration of patience. It's that they are focused on the political. They are focused on what they think Jesus is here to do and that he is here to change the borders and the political map of the region. What they are doing is they are limiting the work of Jesus to what they want. Now, when I put it that way, it should cut close to home. Because can't we be guilty of that as well? We have jobs for Jesus to do, don't we? We want Jesus to clean up our society. We want Jesus to fix our government. We want Jesus to fix poverty. We want Jesus to fix our family. And we're fixated on all of the things that we have given Jesus to do. You see, the irony here is the more that we do that, the further away we get from the actual work of Jesus. Well, Jesus tells this story, and there's one last piece to the setting that I think is helpful to us. You see, when the people started to hear Jesus speak, in verse 12, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. They knew that story. See, not exactly, but it would be kind of like if I said to you, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. You, you know how that story goes, don't you? You know how it's supposed to go, right? 
And here, they hear this story, and just a few years earlier, not even a generation, they had a story like this. After Herod the Great, the king of Judea, died, he left his kingdom to his three sons. He divided it up. And to one of the sons, he gave the area of Judea and Jerusalem. That son's name was Archelaus. And he wanted to be his father's heir. He wanted to be king like his father. But there was only one problem. You could not be king unless you had the Romans' permission to be king. You see, they were in charge of everything. And if you were helpful and they thought it would be to their advantage, they would give you the title of king. That's actually what they did with Herod the Great. Herod the Great was not in the line of David. He was an imposter, but he went to Mark Antony, of all people, and said, would you please make me king? And after helping Antony in some battles, he was given that kingdom. Well, Archelaus went to Rome to go get permission to be king. He gathered his mother and his friends, and they went in a caravan all the way from Jerusalem, all the way up to Rome. But something very interesting happened. Following behind them was a group of Jews. They wanted to be at Rome and they wanted to protest. They wanted to get a veto power because they didn't want Archelaus as their king. And as a matter of fact, in Rome, after Archelaus made his pitch to be king, the Jews came out and gathered the Jews that were in Rome and they said, please don't make him our king. He's horrible. He's corrupt. He's a cheat. He murdered 3,000 Jews on the Passover. He won't be supportive of Rome. There was an obvious tension there. And if you recall, as we've talked about the Romans during our study of Luke, you remember that the Romans only wanted two things in foreign lands. One was peace and quiet, and one was money. That's all they cared about. And so what they tried to do, what Caesar tried to do, was to make everybody happy. He tried to split the difference. And you know what happens when you try and make everybody happy. Nobody's happy. And what they did was Caesar gave Archelaus the rule over that area, but he would not let him be called king. He made up a new title, Ethnarch. Kind of like the junior varsity of rulers. And you can imagine how embarrassing that would be. You see, that's how the story's supposed to end. The nobleman goes to a far country and does not get the kingdom. But as he so often does in his parables, Jesus surprises us. He tells us a twist on the story to get our attention, to focus us off of the narrative and the story and focus us on the truth that he's trying to bring to us. So what happens in this story of Jesus? We see here first in verse 12 that there is a nobleman and he goes far away. He goes into a far kingdom to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now, remember the context. Jesus is telling this story because they think the kingdom is coming immediately. And what does he lead with? The nobleman's going to get this kingdom. But it's way out there. And it's going to take an awfully long time to get there and back. He's immediately changing their expectations. 
He's going into a foreign country to receive a kingdom and to bring it back. He has every intention of returning. And you see immediately that the story is less about Archelaus and more about Jesus. And not our expectation of Jesus, but of Jesus' work itself. Now before he goes, we see in verse 13, he calls together ten servants. And he gives to each of them a mina. Ten servants, ten minas. Now, if you don't know what a mina is, don't worry, you're in good company. I'm here to explain it. A mina is basically four months' salary. So it's a, it's a pretty tidy sum, right? If I were to give you four months' salary, you wouldn't turn me down. But on the other hand... If someone gave you four months' salary, you probably wouldn't quit your job and say you could retire on four months' salary. So it's a substantial sum, but it is not overwhelming. This is important. He gives this to each of them, and he gives them an order. He says in verse 13, engage in business until I come. And this phrase, engage in business, means put the money to work. It actually implies investing and banking. This is what should be in your mind as you're hearing this. Now, this is important. We're going to come to this later. So think with me. He gives them the four mina, excuse me, the mina each. And he tells them to engage in business. Right? It's not an option. Now, some of you may be recalling in your mind a similar parable. The parable of the talents. That's in Matthew 25. It's similar in that which there's a man who gives servants money, but he gives each of them different amounts of money, you may recall. He gives one ten and one five and one one, and he gives them talents. And that is about stewardship of what God has given to us, both in terms of gifts and money. That's actually part of the reason that we talk about people's skills as a talent. It's because of that parable. Here, they're all given exactly the same. They have the same responsibility. They're each given one mina. Well, what becomes of the servants? Well, briefly, the nobleman does come back just as he promised, and there is a day of reckoning. He comes and he asks each of the servants, what has happened? And the first two come up to him, and they have borne fruit in their investment. One has gotten a ten times return. Another has gotten a five times return. Now, the interesting thing, though, is when he comes to the first one and says, what's happened? The answer is, your mina has made ten minas. Now, I find this interesting. Because if someone had given me $10,000 and I had engaged in business, and I was able to come up with $100,000, I think I might say, well, you see, I invested in commodities, and that doubled it. And then after that, I decided to go into currencies, and that tripled it. And then after that, I decided to sell short. And then I worked the market this way. And then I did that. And after it was all done, I was able to come up with $100,000. It'd be natural, right? I mean, you would be excited even about what you had done. But this man doesn't do this. It's almost as if he's taken the deposit and done nothing 
and the deposit has done all the work. Now that's interesting, isn't it? The second man comes up and his story is the same. He says the same thing. Your mina has made five minas. Now again, we should be overwhelmed here. If your broker had increased your savings five times, I don't think you would be upset with him, even if you had a friend who had made ten times. I'm thinking once you found out it was five times, your response would be something like, Woo! It would, there would be no lack of excitement. Both of them are successful, but really they are not. It's the deposit they're given. And they receive a great reward. Now, more about that in just a bit. But then there's a third person. This is kind of the surprise part of the parable. The parable talks about the first man and then the second man. And then look at a close little detail that Luke gives to us. Verse 20. Then another came. You see, Luke is intentionally using language that makes that third man different qualitatively from the first two. That's why he's another. It's actually an aspect of the Greek word. And the third man, this different man, comes up and he says, basically, I took the money you gave me, I wrapped it in a napkin, here it is back, be glad you got it all back. And we're not really told why he didn't invest it. Maybe he was lazy. Maybe he forgot. Maybe he couldn't bring himself to work. And the reason I say we're not sure is because he gives us a reason, but the reason is smoke. Do you see what he says? He says, I kept this in a handkerchief because I was afraid of you. You know, nobleman, it's your fault your money didn't make any money. Not mine. You made me afraid. Do you see the blame shifting? Now, we all understand this immediately, don't we? Because... When people are in the wrong and they try to get out of it, what do they do? They blame shift. It's that person's fault. It's the media's fault. It's society's fault. It's my husband's fault. It's my wife's fault. It's my parents' fault. Right? That's what he's doing. He's shifting the blame. And he says, because I knew that you were a severe man and that you take What you do not deposit, that is, you withdraw from the bank money you don't put in. And you reap what you do not sow. Now, I'm not buying this. Do you want to know why I'm not buying it? Because of the response the nobleman gives. He says, wait a minute. If I'm so horrible, how come you didn't put it in the bank so you could tell me you made me some money? If you're so afraid of me, Why did you risk losing it in a napkin? Why didn't you at least put it in the bank and I could have got interest? Now, this is where sometimes, because the Bible is the written word, it's harder for us than a spoken word. We read the response of the nobleman when he says, I will condemn you with your own words, in verse 22. You wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. And we read it as an admission of guilt. I need you to hear that 
verse in your mind with incredible sarcasm. Now, I I know this is probably difficult for many of you to understand, especially you who are parents, but there is a thing called sarcasm. And occasionally we use it with our children, right? It's the kind of thing that happens is when you tell your children in the morning that what they need to do is, is clean the yard. And as the day goes on, there's games being played and books being read and lunch being eaten and things being done. And the sun comes down and you say, why isn't the yard clean? And they say, well, you just didn't give me enough time. And you might respond with something like this. Oh, exactly. That's right. I only gave you all day. How horrible of me to only give you a day to clean the yard. If only I had given you a week. I'm sure you would have done it with great industry, right? That's what's being said here. The nobleman is not admitting anything. He's saying that the servant is wicked. Why is he wicked? You remember what we said the command was earlier in verse 13? They were told to engage in business. This man has disobeyed. This man has ignored And now he's seeking to put the blame for the failure of that on the nobleman. This doesn't make any sense at all. And then the final thing that we see in this story is that the enemies of the nobleman, of the king, are to be brought before him. They are to be slaughtered. The word there is they are to be slain. They are to be judged and cut down. And you see, then the role reversal is immediate. You see, they started to hear this story and they expected to hear about the citizens who prevented the man from becoming king. This is what they expect. They're in charge. They know what they're doing. And what Jesus says is, your construct is completely wrong. Now, what does all of this mean? What's the meaning of the parable? I'd like us to look at the meaning in reverse order. From bottom up. So let's start then with these enemies of the king. You see, Jesus has told them that their expectations are wrong. This parable, this story, is not about Archelaus. It's about Jesus. And you see, he's talking to people that assumed they could resist Jesus with impunity. That they could do whatever they wanted... And there would be no consequences of it. But what Jesus says to them and to you and to me is he says, I am coming back. And when I come back, there will be judgment. You cannot pretend as if you are in control. You cannot pretend as if I will ignore you. There is a judgment coming to every single person that resists Jesus. That should frighten you. That should make you fear for yourself. It should make you fear for your neighbors. It should make you fear for your loved ones. For you see, Jesus is coming back. What is your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know Him by faith? Do you trust in Him and His work? Are you ready... And able to bow the knee to King Jesus now. Because you see, that's what's called for. To submit to Jesus and His authority. 
The second group is this unfaithful servant. Now, we saw earlier that each of the servants was given the same deposit. So this is not about talent. It's not about who we are and how much we have and how we make use of it. This is, again, different from the parable in Matthew 25. It is a faithful deposit that is given to each and every one of us. It's the deposit of the gospel. You see, we all get that same deposit. Have you ever thought of it that way? All of us get the same deposit of the gospel. The Apostle Paul. Martin Luther. Billy Graham. You. We all get that same deposit. We all have the gospel. We all have work to do with the gospel. We all have the grace that comes from the gospel. In that sense, we are all equal. And you see, the problem here is that there is a critical misinterpretation by this unfaithful servant. He had disobeyed his master. In verse 13, he was clearly told to put his money to work. And when he didn't, he projected his failure upon the nobleman. He said, it's your fault that we haven't succeeded. And the only way he could do this was to slander the king. He said, I was so afraid that you would be angry. I was in a lose-lose situation. If I made money, you would take it away from me. If I lost money, you would punish me. There's a problem with that. You see, what the nobleman says to the other two servants shows that's completely false, doesn't it? They had invested the money. Did he take it from them? Was he severe and harsh? No, he was far more gracious than anyone could expect. Now imagine this. Imagine if I gave you four months' salary. And let's assume it's of someone who makes a good living. I don't like math much, so let's use nice round numbers. $100,000. And so I give you $40,000, four months' approximate salary. And you turn it into What would you think if I said, I'm going to put you in charge of Austin and El Paso and San Antonio and Oklahoma City and St. Louis? That's worth a lot more than $400,000, isn't it? We're talking about billions and billions here. You see, What the other two servants were given is far beyond anything that they deserved, even though we're not even sure that they did anything. The credit goes to the Minas. But even beyond that, they're given control over cities. And this just shows that the unfaithful servant does not know who the king is, does not care who the king is, and is willing to manipulate the good reputation of the king for his own ends. He's a man of excuses. And when we think about him that way, we see him all over the place, don't we? The sad thing is we can even see him in our own lives. 
You see, people don't want to submit to God. They don't want to be ruled by God. This unfaithful servant is like the man who is happy to be sitting in a church pew, but does not want to live his life in subjection to Jesus. He may seem to be a part of the people of God, but he has no interest in the people of God. He has no interest in Jesus. He's simply along for the ride. And you see, he comes up with excuses to change who God is, to criticize who God is. It's the kind of phrases we hear like, well, I could never believe in a God like that. Just because the Bible says that, I could never believe that God would do something like that. It's making up the way God should be. And the irony here is, is that the nobleman calls him on his bluff. He says, if I were really like that, then you should have made every effort you could to make money so I wouldn't be angry. You should have put it in the bank. And, and this, I think, applies to the world's view of God, too. If God really were an all-knowing, all-seeing, wicked, supreme being who manipulated others, then the world should be running to do everything he says as quickly as possible. Right? To not make him angry. But do they? No! Why? Because they know he's not really like that. They just don't want to be in subjection to him. They want to find an excuse and a reason not to be under God. And so what we see here is a principle that as God entrusts us with the deposit of the gospel, we are called to either use it or to lose it. This says something about our faith. We can't be content to simply stand around in the church. Do we dare say, that Jesus is one who takes when he does not give? Do we dare say that Jesus wants us to serve him and for nothing? After he paid the price for our sins and the judgment that we deserve on the cross, and he asks us to encourage others, to read God's word, to pray... Do we really think we're giving something for nothing? You only have one life to live. Are you living it for Jesus? Because you see, we see this in the other two servants, the faithful servants. They did what they were told. And the rewards they get are completely disproportionate to their effort and their gain. They're put in charge of cities. This is a picture of the Christian life. Make no mistake, the Bible asks you, the Bible commands you to submit to King Jesus and to follow his orders. Where he says go, you are to go. Where he says speak, you are to speak. Where he says learn, you are to learn. Where he says love, you are to love. But This is putting the gospel to work in our lives. This is taking that deposit that we have been given. And this bears fruit, doesn't it? First, in our own lives, as we grow in our devotion to Christ, as our prayer life grows sweeter, as our diligence 
in evangelism and mission grows broader. It also moves outside of us as we serve the needs of others, as we see others around us who need a comforting arm, who need encouragement, who need chastisement, who need to know that we care about them. This is putting the gospel of Jesus Christ to work in our lives. The Lord has saved you not so that you might live alone in some kind of sealed-off chamber. There is a reason why He has saved a people, that we might support one another, that we might grow together and love one another as we follow Jesus. And the good news of the gospel is, you will not be tested on how well you did it. Because you see, it's all of grace. Jesus calls us to work, but the results of the work come by His grace. J.C. Ryle puts it this way, Our title to heaven is all of grace. Our degree of glory in heaven will be proportionate to our works. You see, as we look at these two faithful servants, we who trust in Christ, we who follow Jesus and claim His name, we have to understand that it's all about focusing on the kingdom of God, not on ourselves. It's not about us and our needs. Jesus has given us a deposit of the gospel that we might be in community with others. Now what does that mean for you today? It means if you have been entrusted with the gospel, you are called to help those who are hurting. You are called to befriend those who are lonely. You are called to encourage those who are downcast. You are called to teach those who need to learn. You are called to pray for those who need a blessing. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, if you are forgiven by grace, if you are on the path to the Father's house, then this parable has a word for you. Get to work. You have been given a deposit by the king himself. It is a deposit that bears much fruit because of the power of the one who gives it. If we know the gospel of grace, it gives us boldness to work in the name of Jesus Christ for the glory of Jesus Christ. And the honor of Jesus Christ. Christian, what are you doing with your deposit? How are you at work for the kingdom? How are you serving King Jesus? Serve Him with all of your heart and all of your strength and all of your might today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank You, Lord, for the way in which You remind us how much we need King Jesus. How little He asks of us. And even what He asks of us, He has already given to us. Lord, help us to focus upon His kingdom and His people. Help us, O Lord, and give us the strength we need to be Your witnesses here and throughout the world. This we ask in Christ's precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.